You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. Welcome to this Future Net Zero podcast. Today, Johnny Bairstow speaks to Jill Auker, Head of Consultancy at Amp Clean Energy, about whether sustainability is still a priority for UK businesses, how COVID has impacted decarbonisation, and what she believes the government needs to do next. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Future Net Zero podcast. I'm Johnny Bairstow, and today I'm joined by Jill Alker, the Head of Consultancy at Amp Clean Energy. So hi, Jill. How's it going? Hi, Johnny. Yeah, fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Uh, the lockdown continues, but uh, still doing interviews over the computer. Looking forward to getting back out there in person, but no, I'm doing well. Good. Could I ask you to introduce yourself quickly for some of our audience that might not be familiar with exactly who you are and could you tell us what you're talking about today? Okay yeah so I'm Jill Olker I'm the head of consultancy at AMP Clean Energy. I work on a variety of different things for AMP but um, I think probably it's best to to describe me as, as a bit of a problem solver for both issues internally and externally. So my background is in renewable energy and, and primarily my knowledge is in biomass but I've been working in renewables for nearly 20 years and I did my PhD in uh, energy crops and, and bioenergy from Imperial College some time ago now but ever since then I've been working on sustainable energy and low carbon technologies and, um, and because of that I think I've probably seen most problems and, and been able to put my hand to resolve quite a lot of problems and and so as a consultant and, and leading a small consultancy team most of the issues that we come across for our clients and and ourselves we, we can find a solution for so yeah I think we're probably just problem solvers. <laughs> Perfect well there there are problems uh, that we do need to solve namely climate change that's a big one so uh I'm glad you're on the journey to, to help do that. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about how organisations can work towards their own net zero ambitions and the ways that we can help them and then why it is important for them and how, how they can achieve that. Yeah, and I think a good place to start, uh, you've touched on it already, is your wealth of experience there. So I've been working in energy and sustainability for about five years, and I've seen a massive change even in that short time in terms of net zero ambitions and the kind of how important sustainability is on businesses' radars. You've been in the working renewables, you said, for much longer than that. I, I think it's interesting to find out what inspired you to pursue a career in sustainability in the first place, when it was probably less of a popular topic that was in our faces day to day. Yeah. So at school, I was into all the sciences. I loved all the sciences and I didn't really want to pursue just one. And the university course that caught my eye because it, it was essentially utilising all the sciences was environmental science. So I went to Lancaster University. It was only probably a handful of courses doing environmental science at the time but Lancaster and um, the UEA at East Anglia were the, the best so I managed to get into Lancaster and um, the lecturers there were truly inspiring really at that time as well there was I don't know whether you remember it but but it was at the time when we were talking about the ozone layer and the depletion of the ozone layer with CFCs and during my time at university 
I've witnessed, you know, the, the understanding of the problem of, of the ozone layer depletion. And then over the following few years, the way that, that society and, and globally we changed, we adapted our behaviour and the things that we used in order to be able to fix the problem. And it was, you know, it was that that kind of caught my imagination and made me realise that we as, um, as humanity, we, we can change things that we have brought about in terms of damage to the earth. And, and that's what really inspired me, I think, to continue in a, a career of sustainability. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic example because you have a, it's a very vivid image, isn't it? A hole in the ozone layer that we kind of burned through with all of these harmful products. And of course, now, obviously that, I'm not sure on the exact state of it nowadays, but the, the problems, most of that damage has been reversed, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And we made that happen. We understood the problem and we fixed it. And that was, you know, that for a, for a young person in, in that industry, that was quite inspiring. Um, and I think the climate change issue is is obviously a lot bigger. Um, it involves a lot more behavioural change, but it's it's similar. And I and I see, you know, it brings me hope and um, enthusiasm to know that we did it for the ozone layer and we can do it for global warming. Yeah, I think that's really important because these challenges can seem kind of out of reach in terms of when you think of yourself as an individual, oh, what can I do to stop this damage? What can I do to fix it? And it seems a bit hopeless sometimes. And I think it does take a situation like that where you can see what's happened uh, and see the actual progress that has been made. And like you say, that can give you hope for dealing with a bigger challenge, such as reaching net zero by 2050. Yeah, absolutely. I, I won't get, uh, well, we're on the topic of hope. I won't make it too miserable, but we've, we've got to mention the pandemic, really. Do you think COVID-19 will impact our net zero plans? Because businesses are scrabbling to kind of stay in business uh, in many cases. And is, is there a danger of sustainability slipping off the radar? And will they still prioritise sustainability when the, the fog clears? Do you know, I think I think it's actually done the opposite. I think the pandemic has probably initiated the biggest amount of behavioural change that we could possibly imagine in terms of, you know, reducing transport, just thinking of different ways to do things. Admittedly, the, the behavioural change that we've encountered over the last 12 months has not been in order to solve climate change, but it's had a bit of a byproduct of, of having reduced carbon emissions and I think that's opened our eyes to the potential of, of what we could do you know we've seen this change we've seen lots lots of people working at home not traveling you know perhaps thinking a little bit more about what they buy and what they throw away and, and giving them a little bit of headspace as well I think and businesses as well you know they've adapted quite significantly to this and you know it's very easy to carry on in your own way of doing things day in day out um, sometimes something like this has to come along to shake you to make you realize yeah the status disrupt the status quo I suppose exactly exactly so so yes potentially in the short term for businesses who are struggling it's going to be very difficult for them to make big investments in equipment or plant that might you know, help them to become more low carbon but you know, that's perhaps where companies like ourselves can, can help out because we can help them with financing, that kind of thing. 
So yes, I mean, I think in the short term, it, it could have quite a big impact, but in the long term, it's making us realize that we can make changes and things won't completely fall apart if we do. Yeah, well, you, you touched on it there, but what is the role of specialist financiers like Amp Clean Energy uh, in terms of helping these businesses and organisations meet their environmental goals? What role do you play? So, yeah, so we that's essentially what we do. We try and help organisations to implement those changes and reap those benefits earlier than they might be able to achieve themselves. We can guide them along the path to achieving, you know, lower carbon emissions and we can do that by funding providing essentially providing capital for them or providing equipment to them for free and then we both reap those benefits going forward we share in the benefits with them going forward so for example we've got a a very good project at the moment for a big chemical company up in the northeast who have extremely strong environmental credentials and they have signed up to be net zero within the next decade or so and they're working with us because we know primarily because we know what we're doing and we've been there before and we can handhold them through the process but also because we can help them with the finance and they they wouldn't have been able to achieve what they're hoping to achieve for probably a couple of decades if it hadn't have been for our help. Yeah, that's all. That's often a big obstacle, the finance, isn't it? Because companies want to go green. They might not be companies related to energy or sustainability themselves. They could just be an industrial company or something else. So they're not that clued up about the whole process. So you've got that barrier of knowledge of how to go about it, but also the barrier of getting the actual funds together to make the investment. Because even though green technologies generally save money in the long run, there's that upfront cost, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. And and that can be quite a barrier, especially, you know, when you've got other issues, financial issues associated with COVID-19, for example, you know, it's it's perhaps going to drop off the agenda. But but I think we all know that ultimately we've got we've all got to work towards this and being able to achieve that more quickly and reap the benefits more earlier on. The early adopters always tend to make the most get the most benefit in the long term. So helping people to become one of the earlier adopters is our purpose, really. And uh, Rishi Sunak's budget has happened recently. And personally, I expected to hear about a carbon tax. I expected to hear more about a carbon tax in that budget. But obviously, there was a lot to talk about in terms of the wider economy uh, and recovering from coronavirus. But do you personally think a carbon tax is needed? to help decarbonize heavily polluting industries and businesses and really act as kind of a driver to get things going? Yeah, I, I really do think so. The government have many things on their plate at the moment with managing the pandemic and you know the wider economy. But I think that if, if we're really going to try and achieve net zero by 2050, then we're going to have to have some kind of carbon tax. It's It's not a politically attractive tax because it affects so many aspects of our economy and I also think that any carbon tax that we do bring in needs to be an international one. I believe that there are uh, whisperings that the COP26 meeting that's due to take place in Glasgow this year is potentially going to be discussing the idea of an international carbon tax. Um, I know a few countries have tried it 
and then perhaps reversed out of that idea because it's impacted their competitiveness in the global economy. Um, but if it's brought in unilaterally across the world, I think it could be successful. And especially if it's um, something that starts small and ramps up, then I think it's going to have minimal effect on, on economies and maximum benefit to us in terms of carbon savings and global warming. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you do need it to happen um, on a wider scale. So everyone's on, a, on a, a fair playing field and it might not be an attractive option, which uh, maybe is why it wasn't mentioned in the budget. But I think it, it will be necessary, to be honest, because there are so many advantages to going green, um, but some businesses and some sectors are going to find it more difficult. And I think they need um, an incentive that way. So I, I, I mentioned there, actually, some sectors find it more difficult than others to decarbonize. Famously, heat and transport are both pretty emissions intensive and they're, they're quite difficult to decarbonize and find the right technologies. How important do you think decarbonizing heat specifically is in order to achieving net zero? It's really important. So the emissions from space and water and industrial process heating, they're, they're much more under the control of the organizations that need to meet you know their, their carbon emissions basically electricity emissions they're kind of dealt with by you know the, the electricity producers the, the generators the big sticks you know they've been slowly coming down the grid has been decarbonized and and we're seeing that happen the easy stuff is being done and has been done the difficult stuff is you know all those gas boilers all those oil boilers all those all those systems that are owned and managed and operated by the individuals and the organizations, companies, industrial companies out there. And those, and those are the scope one emissions. Those are kind of the priority emissions that we need to get down. So it's, it's very important that heat is decarbonized, but it's also very difficult to decarbonize heat. And this is perhaps why it's been second on the list with, electric with electricity being dealt with first. So the government has put in some policies to try and encourage renewable heat. And we've had the fantastic renewable heat incentive, which unfortunately is coming to an end at the end of March. And um, that's done great, a great job at decarbonizing a lot of heating. But at the moment, there's not a great deal of policy in place following that to encourage people to decarbonize heat. So Many in the industry are watching very closely to see what will happen with policy and um, we're waiting with bated breath really to, to find out how heating will be decarbonised in the future and, and really hoping that, that the government will do the right thing. Yeah, well, I think they need to because 20, 30 years is a long time in, in some respects, but it's, it's the length of time I've been alive. So I'm sure that feels like a long time for all the people uh, that I'm around. But in the same way, 2050 is going to come around extremely quickly, isn't it? And we have so much to do before that deadline. What do you think the government needs to do? What actions need to be taken? You said we need more policy, but what policies are those? What do they look like? Yeah, so the, the CCC, the, the Committee on Climate Change, have set out their vision, and you may not agree with it, you may, I, I'm not sure, <laughs> but it involves electrification, it involves hydrogen, um, heat networks, and at least they have set out some vision, some guidance and, and some leadership, effectively. 
What we haven't seen at the moment is government implementing those recommendations. There's been one or two quite small grants, which, well, I've been in the business for long enough to know that grants don't really work for renewable heating because much of the um, expenses upfront capital ongoing expenses are also high so once the money once the grant money has been spent sometimes you know once businesses have worked out that it's cheaper to go back to the old fossil fuels then they just switch off the new renewables and go back to the old fossil fuel systems so you know I think that any incentives any policy that is put into place needs to be something that supports people on, on an ongoing basis but that could be some kind of carbon tax. It could be something that makes gas or oil, you know, the fossil fuels more expensive to encourage people to continue to use their renewable heating systems. Yeah, that, that would definitely incentivize, incentivize people not to switch back, wouldn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. But at the moment, those policies don't exist and we are desperate to, to hear some of those policies to being put in place because the moment when the RHI disappears there's not a great deal out there for the industry to continue. I completely agree with you that that the policies uh, are much needed to drive this because I think it it would happen on its own given enough time but we, we don't have all the time in the world do we to tackle climate change unfortunately. No, we don't. We don't. And it's it's very interesting. I don't know whether you've come across this, but HMRC put out a report very recently. So this is this is Treasury putting out a report about biodiversity. And, and it was it was highlighted in the introduction by Dave, David Attenborough how important and urgent climate change is. You know, I, I found it amazing that a financial, you know, our biggest financial institution is now sitting up and taking notice of the importance of biodiversity. And that to me means that there's a step change in people's views about climate change, which is great. But like I said, this needs to be transferred into some kind of policy for us all to feel that there is leadership towards that rather than it all being, like we said at the beginning, it's difficult sometimes to feel as if you can make a difference when it's just individuals that are making those changes. It needs to, there needs to be leadership and we need to have policies in place to, to drive things in the right direction. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Jill. I think that's uh, we've come full circle. That's a great place to draw things to a close. Uh, so thank you very much for joining me and I look forward to catching up in the future to see how things are going. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. It was really nice to speak to you. You have been listening to a Future Net Zero podcast along with our partner, AMP Clean Energy. This has been a promoted podcast. Thanks for listening to this Future Net Zero podcast. Please follow us on social media and subscribe to the website at www.futurenetzero.com. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.